Um, before I start, Brother Dan Morby, I got it under good authority, as a testimony to share with us. So Dan, you come on up.
Thank you. <laughs> you did good. Thanks for sharing it. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Going to get it into the Sermon on the Mount. Nate got us started last week, and he said, I think when he first mentioned it, he said, well, maybe six weeks, then I heard him say eight weeks, and then he said, who knows how long, which I agree with. Nate made it through an entire uh, verse last week in the Sermon on the Mount, and he was asking me, uh, I think uh, in the middle of the week, or maybe it was last week, he said, uh, you know, how far are you going to cover? And I said, oh, I, don't, I don't know. And I'll just tell you, uh, probably one more verse. How's that? We're not going to go too fast here. If you grabbed it, there is a list of scriptures um, out here uh, in, the, in the foyer. And uh, we'll be following those reasonably closely. Before we, um, before we dive into the Beatitudes... I want to give a. I want, just want to talk about sort of an overview of the Sermon on the Mount for a couple minutes. Um, most of us probably think we're pretty familiar with it. It's not an unusual passage of Scripture. Um, it's a famous passage of Scripture. It's the most famous sermon that was ever preached in the history of the world. Sermon on the Mount. And I'm referring to it as Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's a couple things I want to point out about it. First of all, by contrast, Jesus, Jesus teaching his disciples and the multitude that followed him up, by contrast to uh, what happened at Mount Sinai back in the Old Testament, when God came down and spoke. What a tremendous contrast. If you look with me real quickly back in Exodus 19 and 20. Exodus 19, verse 16. So it came about on the third day. Now this is... This is uh, God's getting ready to speak to Moses. On the third day, when it was morning and there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet around, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. You jump over to the next chapter, verse, chapter 20, verses 18. And 19. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. Just think about the contrast between that and Jesus leaving coast, the Sea of Galilee, a walk up with his disciples and the multitude just freely following him up there. We don't know exactly where this took place. It was, it was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee and fairly close to Capernaum. There's a couple of different places. There's, there's probably one that's traditionally viewed as the as the place where Jesus preached this sermon. We don't know, we don't know for sure. We know the general area. And I, and I think probably the one that's, that's uh, historically recognized, I think it's probably accurate. There's been, there's been of course, uh, a church built there, some, some shrines made there. We hear the sermon on the Mount quoted a lot. It's quoted in conversation, it's quoted in writing, in uh, literature. 
think about it. I was with a couple of friends for breakfast two days ago, and one of them used the phrase that a certain, certain people were the salt of the earth. Okay? What Jesus said about his disciples. He just used it. What, is it, what did he mean? Well, if, you say, if, you're, if someone says you're the salt of the earth, it means you're, you know, it's really solid. That's what he meant by it. He wasn't making any reference that he knew of to the Sermon on the Mount, I can guarantee you that. Ronald Reagan called the United States a city on a hill when he compared it to other nations. I'm not saying it's a bad comparison. I'm just saying it's quoted a lot. It's quoted a lot. Eye for an eye, turn the other cheek. You get a room full of people who don't have the foggiest idea really what they're saying to recite the Lord's Prayer. You know that? They just, they'll just plow through it because they have it memorized. They may not have ever even thought about the words, but they memorize the words. They memorize the words that Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Lilies of the Field. Hey, that was a good movie. Sidney Poitier. Remember that? Lilies of the Field. Where that reference came from. And then, of course, the most commonly quoted passage of Scripture in the entire Bible, quoted by people who've never touched a Bible, judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, our president at the time used that quotation to defend same-sex marriage. Quoted it right out of, right out of the Sermon on the Mount. And it'll get quoted a lot, especially when people don't want um, to be called into account on something. Amen. It's often quoted. It's highly esteemed and even... And this is why... The reason I spend a minute on this is because we need to be sure that we haven't adopted the understanding or the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount that is widespread around us. It's esteemed in the entire world because it has such lofty moral ethics. And there's a, there's a, uh, there would scarcely be anyone from any religion that would throw rocks at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. There's even a body of belief that says, you live out the Sermon on the Mount, you're in. That's salvation. You just, you just live out the sermon. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Buddhist, doesn't matter what you are. If you'll, if you'll, if you'll live to this lofty ideal, um, that constitutes salvation. I found a quote from an Orthodox rabbi that gives me great pause. And I want to share it with you because I think as we approach this, we need to be sober-minded about what Jesus said. It's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi said, and I quote, the history of Christianity is a history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid living according to its plain language. Now you could say, well, that guy wasn't very nice. Let me read it again. The history of Christianity is a history of Christians trying to evade the Sermon on the Mount and avoid living according to its plain meaning. Now, I'm only, I'm only letting you know that's how the world looks at it, by and large. And that's a sobering criticism and a sobering indictment that I hope is not true for us individually. But I would have a problem saying that that criticism was completely unfounded. I think there was a lot of truth in it. It might not be quite as widespread as the rabbi said, but it's, but it's founded in an awful lot of uh, historic evidence. I think the question for each of us is, Really, as we, as we spend time in the Sermon on the Mount, what's our attitude about it? 
I think this is a question in our heart as we spend time in this passage of Scripture. What is our heart attitude about it? Have we adopted a, a worldview that, hey, it's lofty, lofty moral ethics, you know, if we just, if we just do this, no more war, we'd all get along, everybody would be happy. You know what? That's true. <laughs> That's true. Jesus wasn't laying out a formula for social reform. Amen? That wasn't what, wasn't what he was saying. He wasn't giving us the formula for social reform. He wasn't laying out uh, a pattern of behavioral modification. Like, if you could just do this, you'd be in pretty good shape. That's not what Jesus was saying. Say what I believe it is. It's a simple, but very radical. Radical at the time he spoke it, just as radical today. It's the very words of God Almighty who took on human form and came down and walked out a human existence in the flesh and sacrificed himself for us. I think these words are sober. I think they're radical. They're so radical they're scarcely understood. And as we've said before, just because something's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Those are two different things. I think Jesus' teaching is plain. It's very plain. And I think the challenge to me, and I would say the challenge to each of us as we go through it, is don't start saying what it doesn't mean. Don't take the simple, plain words and start saying, well, he couldn't mean that. After all, you've got to have some common sense involved in this thing. He couldn't mean when somebody asked, just give. He couldn't really mean that, like, literally. I'd just say, let's be careful. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, that we don't dust off, set aside something that Jesus spoke very plainly to us. So, amen? Okay. That's the overview of the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't gotten to the sermon yet. We need one more overview, and that's the overview of the Beatitudes, just the very first part of this. As I said, Nate started in uh, on blessed are the poor in spirit. And Nate, I felt like you did a great job drawing out of that. What does it really mean? What does it really mean to be poor in spirit? It means you have to recognize you're spiritually bankrupt. You're bankrupt. And when you get to the end of yourself, you can't do it. I think that's what in a nutshell, that's what being poor in spirit means. And I think it's tied to uh, mourning, but we'll get to that in a minute. You know, when Jesus started into the Beatitudes, you think about it, he didn't preface it with some drawn-out explanation of, of his authority to say it or some theological uh, basis to bring, he just sat on or maybe stood. He just started talking. I mean, it says, he opened his mouth, started talking. This is what he said. Blessed are the poor. He just went right down. I think what Jesus was saying was really boiled down to this. Let me tell you, let me tell you what a person who lives under the blessing of God looks like. When Jesus spoke the Beatitudes, that's what I think he was saying. Let me tell you what a person who lives under the blessing of God looks like. And he probably also at least parenthetically said, because it might not be what you previously thought. All through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not getting to it today, Nate or Justin or someone, you'll bring it out. 
Jesus said, you heard it said, but I tell you. You heard it said, but I tell you. You heard it said, but I tell you. He challenged them. It was radical. I think when we read the Beatitudes, the natural question that comes into our mind, the natural question that comes into my mind at least, is, do these words describe me? These words describe me. I think if you read the Beatitudes, and that isn't the question that comes to your mind, <laughs> read them more carefully. <laughs> Pay more attention while you're reading them. <laughs> this is a bit of a diversion, but uh, I think, Nate, it might have been you. I was talking to someone, and this, the subject was kind of eschatological. It was like uh, end time something, and I just said, wow, before we wade in real deep there, let's be sure we got the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> you know, there's so, there's so much uh, fourth and fifth tier doctrine. We've got to have this part right. There's another thing that I want to point out. I think when you look at the Beatitudes, there's a progression described in them. And Nate or Dustin, if I'm stealing your thunder for next week or two weeks, I don't mean to. I just, wanna, I just want everyone to understand as we go through this, there's a progression involved. The thing that Nate talked about last week, being poor in spirit, step one. Step one. And what does being poor in spirit make you do? Makes you mourn over sin. We're going we're gonna to get into that a ways today. Oh, and when you do those things, what happens? You repent. And when you do those things, what happens next? Well, you get awful. You get pretty humble. <laughs> All right? You get real humble. And you stay real humble. And what happens after that? You get this unquenchable hunger and thirst after righteousness. Just to know more. To know more. There's a progression. That's all I'm saying. Watch for the progression as we go through the Beatitudes. I think I read them scores, hundreds of times before that, before that registered to me. Oh, this is a progression. This is a progression. And step one, Nate drove home last week thank you for doing it, brother, is you're not coming out of the starting box until you've been at that place where you said, I'm at the end of myself. And Nate said, you can't, like, you, I, don't, I don't remember how you said it, you can't get any lower, whatever. But there has to be a recognition for a man to become a bondservant of Jesus Christ. There has to be a recognition, I can't do this. I can't do it on my own. I'm powerless to do it. I'm bankrupt to try and do it. And you know, I think that continues. It must continue with us all through our walk. Amen? It isn't like just, well, I was bankrupt once, and then this happened, and now I'm not. No, it's an ongoing recognition that we are powerless in and of ourselves to attain any kind of righteousness. We're, we're, power, we're powerless. Let's keep it in mind while we go through the Beatitudes. If you think about the progression, I think of it sort of like a tree. The first couple are the roots. All right? And then the next couple are like the part that starts to show up above ground. And the last ones are the fruit by the tree. Does that make sense? The root, the root is poor in spirit, born to repentance. And then the trunk starts to grow. And then what's the fruit? Purity of heart. Peace. Peace. Those are the fruits. Amen. Okay. I don't want to... Uh, Go further because on that on that part because that's getting way ahead of myself. 
Let's talk about the second one. That, that was all lead-in. Now the sermon starts, all right? Um, let's just read them together. Matthew chapter 5. Let's start with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I can't resist pointing out one more thing before we just concentrate on verse 4. Um, you notice that several of those, it's uh, shall be, will be, you know, shall be, something future. The first one, the first one isn't future. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not they shall inherit the earth or something that hasn't happened yet. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I think understanding what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of heaven, I think that's a topic that would take me at least two more uh, sermons to, to make it through. But I think ultimately the question for each of us is, are we in it? And I think, the, I think it's very easy to answer that. You know how? Who's your king? <laughs> Who's your king? If your king isn't the Lord, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. I'll leave that one for someone else to go into a little deeper. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Man, what a great topic to come to church and hear about, right? Mourning. Um. <laughs> it is a good topic. It is a good topic. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think Jesus is just continuing a theme from the previous verse. Okay? First, he says in verse 3, blessed are those who recognize their sinfulness and that they're powerless of their, on their own to do anything about it and that they need a Savior. And now he adds, blessed are those who mourn And I'm going to insert for their sin, but we're going to get into that here in a second. These two are intertwined with one another, and mourning follows being poor in spirit. You know, if you think about mourning, I really believe there's three types of mourning. There's natural mourning, which means we lost something. We lost someone. We Either someone has passed on, and boy... We've had a lot of that in 2020, it seems like. You know, I was thinking, just in preparing this, it was at the end of June last year, our brother Joe Sanchez, you know, one Sunday morning, he was right there. And Tuesday, I think, God called him home. And Peg and I have been to, boy, a lot of funerals, a lot of memorial services, a lot of life celebrations. It just seemed like there's been a lot of natural mourning for us in this past year. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that's the mourning Jesus is talking about in verse 4. Okay? Will, will that type of mourning be comforted? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think he's talking about something deeper. The natural mourning is 
It can happen from someone passing away. It could happen from someone moving away. It can happen from a lot. And it's, it's a natural byproduct of living in a fallen world. It's, a, it's part of the human, it's part of the human uh, experience of living in a world where death occurs. Partings occur. Goodbyes happen. And they tug and they, you know, they tug on us. They have, they're painful. There's a type of mourning. There's a spiritual mourning that leads to repentance. A few months ago, Nate brought forth a sermon on repentance, and Nate, I'll just say, you know, you think about this, boy, you come at, you come at this from so many different directions. The thing that brought about that sermon wasn't primarily the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, but here we are, back at the same thing. I didn't go back and listen to your sermon, brother, but, but the but I believe the gist of it or the summation of it was, hey, you can't become a bondservant of Christ without the step of repentance. You have to have it. It's, un it's unavoidable. It's, it's, the, it's a requirement. We'll come at it from a different passage of Scripture here it's for the same reason. You know, we can be in mourning or sorrow, and we can have two very, very different outcomes. But let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Probably a passage that used in that repentance sermon, Nate. kinds of sorrow here morning. 2 Corinthians 7, start with verse 9. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, and that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Let's just compare those two for a minute. Wow, what a statement. The sorrow that's according to the will of God, my New American Standard says the will of God, that, that's inserted, or the sorrow that's according to to God, that's the literal, produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You know, if you're in mourning over sinfulness, that can head two ways. If it's a, if it's a mourning that Paul's talking about here brings us to repentance, which ultimately leads us to life. People can have another type of mourning. It's not from God. It's from the enemy. You know what it leads to? Despair. It leads to despair. Because whereas the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit shining a light in a man's heart to say, there's something that has to be dealt with here. In fact, this whole thing needs to be dealt with. Is not a hopeless thing when there's hope at the end of the repentance. Does that make sense? But if it's from the enemy, it will be, you're beyond hope. 
you're beyond, you're beyond being helped. And this is, the, this, this is the point of despair. If someone, is, if, if someone has the weight of their, of their guilt on their life, and they do not have the hope associated with it, they're driven to absolute despair. Our daughter-in-law's father, a wonderful guy, and uh, you guys remember when you remember when you, the posters said uh, "Got milk"? Remember the "Got milk"? They got a milk mustache or whatever, you know. He had a T-shirt, "Got hope," because he because he just he just had it on his heart so much. He was he was uh, I think around a lot of of young kids, and he realized kids don't have any hope that when they when they're absent the gospel of Christ and they're just looking at the world around them or they get the glimpse of the destitute nature of their own heart. And you know what a lot of them did? They said, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out of here. Because, and you know, and you know what that is? exactly where the enemy would like to take every one of us to a place of despair over sin that ends in death and deny the hope that's in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think there's a couple of important things that, that uh, we need to draw out of here. If you, if you look at... Um, a mourning or a sorrowing over sin. I want to look, I want to look at a comparison between uh, Saul, Israel's first king, and David. I preached a sermon here within the last six or eight months. I don't remember exactly. And we went to 1 Samuel uh, 15. That sermon, was, that sermon was driving home a different point. That sermon was about not letting the king live in your life. Saul was told, we'll just review it real fast. Saul was told to go out early, destroy the Amalekites. And he almost did it, right? He was about 99% obedient. And the moral of the story of 1 Samuel 15 is 99% equals zero. Because partial obedience or incomplete obedience is disobedience. And he was called on the carpet. You know, I won't take you through the whole story. But when they came back from the battle and he, said, he met Samuel and he said, Praise God, I've done exactly what the Lord told me to do. And Samuel said, but why do I hear bleeding of sheep in my ears? Because the Lord told you to utterly destroy everything, including the sheep, including the oxen. And then what did he do? Well, he blamed the people. And then he said we were going to bring him home and sacrifice him to the Lord. But the long story short for Saul was he got caught. He got caught. And if you take it right down to the punchline, it's verse 30, 1 Samuel 15, verse 30. This is after, basically after Samuel has cornered him about his disobedience. He said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Okay, what's my point? What was the motive of his heart? I'm caught. Okay, I'll admit it. I messed up. But hey, man, you got to keep me looking good. I'm the king. You got to keep me looking good, Mr. Prophet. I want you to come back with me because I want, I want the dog and pony show 
uh, of having the prophet on my side when I go back in front of the elders and the people. Does that make sense? I know. Does this story make sense? That he did it, hopefully it doesn't make sense, but you understand what I'm saying. I want to I jump to, uh, just, just to compare, jump over to sec, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The next king, David, which the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Now I would have to tell you there's a whole lot of people that would say what David did if we're going to rank sin was a lot worse than what Saul did. Saul failed to kill some sheep and he failed to kill the king and he brought him back alive and he lied about it. David took another man's wife, had her husband killed and he got called on the carpet by a different prophet. This time it was Nathan. But I want to point out something. And this is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. You just heard what Saul said when he was confronted. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Saul said, I've sinned, uh, but would you come back with me and uh, honor me? I want you to come honor me in front of the elders and the people of Israel. David said, I sinned before the Lord. Were they both, did they both have some sorrow? Did they both have some mourning? Yeah, I think they did. Where did Saul's lead him? To death. One of the most tragic stories in the entire Bible is the life of Saul. Absolutely tragic. Let's jump over to uh, Psalm 51. This is what David wrote when he was in the middle of the story we just read, 2 Samuel. 51. I'm just going to point out to you the difference between Saul and David was this was the cry of David's heart, Psalm 51. Saul didn't write anything like this. He just said, try and make, it, try and make me look good. Try not to embarrass me in front of the people. Wow. We won't read the entire thing. He's just crying out to the Lord. Asking to be forgiven. Asking to have his iniquity washed away. Pleading with God. That his Holy Spirit wouldn't depart. Pleading with God to create in him a clean heart. That he wouldn't be cast away. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. This was a man who, in his sorrow, he retained hope that a merciful God would be there for him, would blot out his iniquity, would restore him to right standing and right place with his God. Saul Never wrote anything like Psalm 51. He was just worried about his own personal reputation. Can't you see David? I mean, 
How do you picture, or where do you picture David when he's writing Psalm 51? I mean, is he is he in his chamber? Is he on a rooftop? Is he, is he st- you can hear his heart, though. I don't know where he was, but you can hear the just the genuine cry of his heart. We have to be brought to the end of ourselves. That's being poor in spirit. If we're truly brought to the end of ourselves, recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God. The natural result is mourning. Now before I wrap up here, Here comes the rant part of the sermon, all right? That's not the right word. It's not a rant, rant. This is the takeaway. The church is full of people who assented or agreed to a statement of belief and never mourned their sin. You know what I'm saying? Why does that matter? Because Steve wants to stand up here and sound holier than everyone else? No, because it's heartbreaking. Because there's a gospel preached that dodges the clear teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and dodges the clear teaching of Scripture. David said later on in, in Psalm 51, look down there. The, this is verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I'm just telling you that if you accepted Christ absent, having the absolute deplorable, bankrupt nature of your heart revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, uh, I think you need to back up and have another stab. All right? I'm I'm just going to go so far as to say, just having someone say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, do not make them a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that becoming a bondservant is a, is a matter of going to the it's a matter of going to the doorpost of your master and willingly saying, Pierce my ear, pierce my ear to this doorpost. You own me. I don't own me. I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. Why is this such a maybe hot button or sticking point for me. Well, here's why. If someone never really mourned their sin, did they ever really repent? Or or would they be likely to stay right in their sin keep repeating their sin and keep being presumptuous about God's grace. All of which I will tell you I think are, frankly, they're blasphemy. Sound over harsh, Brian? I don't mean to. And I'm not trying to sound judgmental. I look around and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. You know, you zoom ahead to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Nate, I think you talked about this last week. Jesus said, many will come in my name and say, Lord, Lord. And ultimately, what did they do? Oh, they cast out demons. They did all they did miracles. As far as I know, they really did do them. When he says, depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. 
Are they going to be surprised? I think they're going to be stunned. I think they're going to be flabbergasted. And do you know, do you know why? Because I think they're going to believe that they were in good standing with the Lord. And I'll, t- and I'll take the next step and say, and here's why. Because they heard and accepted a gospel different than the real gospel. They heard a gospel that says, well, if you'll just say you believe this and this and this, here's your get-out-of-jail-free card, here's your fire insurance policy, and welcome on board. And they don't know better. So they said, okay. And the next thing, they're in ministry or teaching Sunday school or doing whatever. And they're going along, going along. Or some besetting sin that they cannot seem to shake haunts them and haunts them and haunts them and haunts them. And they go through a never-ending cycle of frustration, ask for forgiveness, do the same thing over, be frustrated, ask for forgiveness, do the same thing over and over and over. You know what? That's not the abundant life Jesus promised to his followers. It's not, it is not the Christian walk that's set forth in the New Testament. But we see it around us a lot. And the only reason I dwell on this and rant a little <laughs> is because I really do believe this is, this is the essence of the problem so many times. The essence of the problem is you don't need to feel bad about yourself. Just come on, you know, come on in. I, I, think, I, I think people have had the conviction of the Holy Spirit shut off of their heart by being told, oh, no, man, oh. Oh, if you feel guilty, that's, that's, from, that's from the devil. <laughs> no. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is a heavy, heavy thing. But, praise God, there's hope at the end of it. That's the difference. If there wasn't the hope, then it's a despairing thing. We probably wandered far and wide from my notes here. And it's... Uh, also, probably well past my allotted time, isn't it, Justin? Yeah. <laughs> Let's wrap up. Little Romans chapter 7. Famous, famous passage. By the way, when I was uh, approached about being an elder, said, well, Nate, there's a couple things you need to know, man. One of them is, I don't hold to the teaching about Romans 7 that most people do. So, just be sure you know what's Paul talked about. I'm not going to go through Romans 7. I'm just going to go to the end. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Why does he say, wretched man that I am? He said, trying to do it by the law, and it won't work. It won't work. And the very thing that I don't want to do is the very thing I'm stuck doing. Wretched man that I am. Wow. Who will set me free from the body of this death? See, without some hope, where's he headed? Where is he headed? He's headed to to a despairing place. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is the answer. Who? A man acquainted with sorrows. Isaiah 53. Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrows. We find ourselves in sorrow. 
We need not think he doesn't understand it. I think we need to be like David. David, back in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. Created me a clean heart. And I would even say a really good practice to get into on a daily basis would be to pray a part of another psalm, which is the end of the 139th. Again, David's heart cry. You guys know this passage. You do well to make this your prayer when you get when your eyes open every morning or before they close every night. Psalm 139, right at the end of the chapter, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me or any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, I think the path of sanctification is a path of ongoing poverty of spirit. And it is a path of ongoing quickness to mourn over sin. And quickness to repent. And quickness to be restored. Amen? When we mourn sin, we ought not be mourning sins from 20 years ago. Okay? Because they were, they were removed. They were clean. We ought not be bragging about them, though. Right? Ultimately, ultimately, if they were brought to our memory, it should make us mourn. It should make us go, yeah, you can't believe what a hell you know, I used to be, right? Man, I did this and this. And pretty soon, someone's testimony is a bragging about their, their sinful, sinful nature, their past life. And they're not showing the grief, what it brought to their father. Okay. Okay, Steve, wrap it up. My apologies for being long-winded, and thank you for your patience. I had two more pages, but that'll have to wait. Let's be poor in spirit. Let's be quick to mourn sin. Let's be quick to repent and be restored. Amen. Who has communion this morning? Right.